Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Bright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, William's getting married. Let's go to St. Pete's. From IFC Films comes the follow-up to the international sensation, La Berge Española. I'm getting married. <laughs> no. Yeah. I found true love. <laughs> Real love. Yes, I I was going to get married. Um, maybe. No. Maybe. Maybe. No. <laughs> Andy, uh, we're back with Cedric Klapich's uh, film, uh, Russian oh, Dolls. Oh, yes, we are. Yeah. Mm. 
now, this is the second, the follow-up to L'Auberge Espagnole, uh, the Spanish apartment that we watched last week. It was uh, it was reality bites in Spain, and uh, about the the kids find it, figuring out what they want to do with their lives. And there were relationships, and there was a lot of sex, and there was intrigue and comedy, and lots of languages spoke. And we both felt pretty strongly about that movie. Uh, and this is the follow up. We we follow our uh, our friend Xavier. He is now uh, it's five years later, and he is trying to figure out still how to be a grown-up he this is the is one of the early hashtag adulting movies where he's just trying to figure out how to get along in the world keep a stable job figure out a stable relationship and uh how neither of us had seen this movie uh i'm i want to know how it hit you Watching this movie was an interesting experience for me, and the thing that I took away from it mostly was, man, I hope that Cedric is not going to ruin my love of his first film with these next two, because I think he does some interesting things here, but I feel like this was an opportunity to kind of revisit these people but not in a way that uh, was satisfying in any way. I, I really questioned what the point of this film was and uh, why we needed to pick up with uh, with uh, Xavier and friends at this particular moment. So it was a bit of a, a bit more of a struggle for me. I was worried about exactly that watching this movie, that this is this is a movie that we really should have just left at a single uh, atomic entity, that it was a gratifying exploration of this year in these people's lives and that exploring beyond that just becomes a drudge. I struggled to get into this movie. Um, it, it it takes a long time to pick up, and and it actually opens beautifully, and and you know it sets up with Xavier on a train, and he's writing, and and he he sets up the narrative that he's going to tell us a story. He's not going to tell us the story in order, so that's kind of a fun play on on narrative structure. So that starts on the train, and then starts jumping through time. Um, we do see some of those fun kind of editorial tricks. Speeding up time um, was was done again, not not quite as masterfully as I think they did in the first movie, but they did play a little bit with that stuff in this movie. Um, and and then it what what is it? It's it's kind of him figuring out how to be with women. And frankly, Andy, he is not as likable a guy in this movie as he was in the last movie. I just didn't like him that much. It was very frustrating, and it made me, what happened was, it brought up elements in Xavier as a as a person that I think some of them are there in the first film, but because he's so lost in that first film, um, in everything else, and trying to figure himself out and what he's going to do with his life, it, it's he's a lot more likable here. Uh, you know, he's he's pursuing his career. He's followed his dream. It's not the dream that he set out to do. You know, he's he's not exactly thrilled with it, but he's still doing it. Um, but really, we kind of, I don't know, we, we end up seeing more of him as a person that that we had seen glimpses of, like the way he talks to his mom is always just, he's always a jerk to his mom. And in the first film, he was too, but I, I kind of wrote it off as just kind of, you know, kind of a quirky thing. And here I just, you know, I was like, God, you know, he's still a jerk to his mom and I like him less for it. And, uh, you know, he, he doesn't treat women well and I like him less for it. And it kind of kept happening. It was very frustrating. Absolutely agree. And the mom thing, I think, is a really good one to pick out here because his relationship with his mom, like she's all she's trying to do is be a good mom to an adult son. And he doesn't really give her a good opportunity to do that. Right. And uh, it. I really struggled with that. In the in the last movie, five years earlier, I think you can write it off, at least I did, to the sort of youthful um, insurrectionism, you know? He's just trying to kind of grow up a little bit. It's five years later now, and man, you just be nice to your mother, right? Yeah, right. You just... She's be nice divorced to your mother. now, she's with yeah. a new guy. I mean, you know, be nice to her. She needs that in her yeah. life. Absolutely. So I really struggled with that. And the problem, I, I think, is 
magnified by all of these other characters that we loved from the first movie who kind of come back into orbit and they're all better people than he is. Like, I enjoy every one of them more than my time with Xavier, our protagonist. Uh, I even liked William, who was an ass in the last movie. He was the guy we all hated in the last movie because he had no frontal lobe uh, and just said everything that he needed to say when he said it and was incredibly rude, shockingly rude to a number of people. And I, we did not like him. I really enjoyed what we get out of him and his redemption, his sort of character redemption, having gone to the trouble, meeting this beautiful ballet dancer from Russia, getting her a dress that he can't read and taking a year to learn Russian before he goes to try to find her. It was an extraordinary and romantic uh, effort, and I was so touched by that. I thought it was terrific. Um, Xavier gave us no such grand uh, endeavor. There's nothing that, that redeemed him in that way. No, I feel like he's, so he's struggling with his writing. He's still writing. He still is uh, successful uh, in some ways. He hasn't written his great novel, but he has, you know, he's writing for uh, kind of a, a sequel to a, a TV movie, and he's uh, doing ghost writing for people's biographies, and uh, you know he's there are things that he's doing that involve writing. So he has made a career as a writer. It's just not the novelist, but he's still there. So that's great. I mean, I think that's a that's a success in some ways. But so the, so then, what is the story? Is it about him? Uh, unable to find love. It, it seems like it's starting to set off. It, it's weird because the film set, sets us off where he's back with Martine, uh, Audrey Tattoo's character from the first film, but not with her. They're just friends. She has uh, been married, had a kid, and is divorced. And he just kind of befriends her and they hang out and stuff. And he takes care of her kid when she goes on a trip, et cetera, et cetera. But other than that, he's just like sleeping with women left and right. And uh, doesn't really seem to, you know, find a way to connect at all with anybody. And is, like, what is the film trying to say with that? And it's, I get it. It's okay. So the first one, it was career. This one is love, I guess. But I just, uh, I don't know. His story was a frustrating one. And, um, and, and we do take a long time in setting it up. And I mean, we don't even get to Russia until the first uh, hour of the movie's gone by. And it really kind of, it it did take its time. I didn't have as much a problem getting into it because I do think that's one thing that Cedric Klapich does really interesting is find a way to tell stories in fun and interesting ways. Um, and, you know, in this one, we get those frames and the really cool time jumps and the way that he kind of was blending um, frames as as Xavier was interviewing people and you'd kind of have one interview and then you'd have these little squares kind of pop up of a different interview and everything was overlaid and blend uh, really nicely. I thought that was super cool. Um, oh, uh, and yeah, but- I, just to jump in on that, I, I can't l- let you finish that part of the conversation without bringing up the the band in his head when he starts talking about most of <laughs> right. what I do when I'm pitching is just tell stories uh, about just trying to get the job and other hymns come in playing, you know, a flute and, you know, different instruments and dancing around. Yeah. Behind whoever he's talking to, whatever business associate he's talking to in the interview. And I found that uh, really uh, just a a delightful and kind of frivolous, fantastical um, addition to uh, the story makes it very, very playful. And so to, to your point, I think that that is something that helps the opening 45 minutes or so of otherwise a little bit of a slog for me. Yeah, and some of it works better than others. Like, you know, he he has this neighbor that he says is super boring, and he takes that person, because it's almost like as a writer, he's kind of dubbed him kind of the average guy. And so when he's writing, he takes that average guy, and he puts him into the characters that he's writing. And so you see this neighbor of his in these scenes that he's writing. And it's kind of cute, but it didn't completely land for me. I was like, eh, kind of there, kind of not. Um, one area, actually, I think that Klappich, um failed for me on, I thought in the first film, he so brilliantly used all that speed ramping and the fun way to kind of have have Xavier moving through the kind of the, the craziness of the business world. Uh, you know, we, we saw him 
early in the school when he's kind of going from office to office trying to get his paperwork done. We see that when he's going to this economics finance position and he's going from office to office talking to people and looking at kind of all the stuff he's going to do. It felt very much a part of kind of uh, the craziness of the way that life ran. And here they do it when all of the friends are reunited at the end and they're kind of just going around and taking a tour of this Russian apartment that that uh, that William and his his uh, fiance and her family all live in. And it's like it it took it out of the context that it had always been used in and it's still fun. But it's like all of a sudden I'm like, I feel like he's just throwing it in to throw it in now. Well, and he threw it in in a, a place where, you know, it's arguably one of the most interesting set pieces of the entire movie is to see how these people live together. And um, and, and I think to to apply trickery to it uh, actually deflates what we really needed to get out of that part of the film. Plus, it's our chance to get connected back with all of these people from the yes. first film. And that's something that was really neglected in this one. By the time everybody comes together for William's wedding, it's like, I feel like they were only there just to kind of throw him in just because, you know, he wanted to reunite them. It didn't right. feel like a, an important part of the story. Well, especially the young woman, who, the native uh, Barcelonan, right? She she was hardly in it at all. She had a little toast at the wedding, and uh, I I really liked her part. We had more of characters like Wendy uh, because she becomes a central figure in the film, certainly a central woman in his relationship life, and ends up being kind of where where he lands at the end of the film. Uh, were you were you surprised by that? I, I wasn't surprised. I, I guess I was surprised by the fact that that was the direction that they they turned it on. Um, but I wasn't surprised by the fact that, um, you know, hey, it's it, this is how lives unfold. You know, these random people that you were connected with for a time all of a sudden become a hugely critical part in your life, possibly even uh, one of your serious relationships. I, I thought it was it made sense when it happened. I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, I can I can see that. Um, it, it surprised me that I guess it was wrapping up, <laughs> you know, it had been such a, a, a kind of whirlwind of him and his relationships and his really poor choices of language with women. Um, and, and that, that by the time he kind of landed with Wendy again, I, it was satisfying because I like Wendy as a character. I, I enjoyed her. Um, but also I now feel like I'm, I've been with, Xavier for four hours and um, arguably, you know, six, seven years of his life. And I feel like she needs better than him. Like I, as an audience member, I know more about him than she does. And uh, and I, I feel like she she deserves a, a more dramatic improvement over you know, the man that she had been with almost immediately before him. And and uh, I think she's, you know, it made me just say, oh, you need to make better choices. And that's not a feeling I want when I'm coming out of this romantic movie uh, to say that the protagonist isn't good enough for you at the very end of the film. Yeah, right. I mean, there's, there's a couple interesting scenes that I think uh, relate to that. And I think the the main one, obviously, is when Wendy picks up the phone and sees that this famous person, Celia, was calling to talk to uh, Xavier because they had connected um, before he kind of connected with Wendy. But um, she, she's in Russia and uh, wants to hook up, and he lies to Wendy and says, oh, I've got to go over to Moscow to uh, to meet, to do this project. Yeah, new client, new client. New client, yeah. And she has this amazing um, moment when she's saying goodbye to him at the train station about how he's perfect. He's the perfect guy. The reason he's perfect is because all of his imperfections are things that she's totally fallen in love with. This was a, just a defining speech that was beautiful. It was beautifully done. I loved everything about it. And then uh, it's it's the defining moment for him, too, because he doesn't listen and he walks away and he hops on the train and goes off to this, quote, job so that he can uh, have this hookup with with Celia that turns to nothing because of the type of person she is. And it um, I, I think that 
her speech there gave me everything that I needed to find in the connection between the two of them. I think I wanted to see a little bit more of that on the screen, but I think I was okay with their relationship because of that speech and because of everything. Now, yes, I mean, show, don't tell. You want to see all of that sort of stuff unfolding. Um, but, uh, you know, on the flip side of that, to your point, there are a lot of horrible things that he does in this film um, that uh, you know, we don't necessarily like him for. Like, you know, the the way that, oh my goodness, the way that he just acted toward women in this, that when when he is with Martine and um, they are, they've connected just as friends and she had spent the night because she just needed somebody, um, nothing sexual, just kind of that, you know, that connection of another being. And the next morning she's leaving and this other girl that he had connected with comes over and uh, he treats Martine horribly. He treats this other woman horribly. Um, Isabel and all of her friends are there and they, you know, get on his case. He treats them horribly. You know, I was like uh, happy when one of them punched him and I was upset that not every one of them punched him. He was like such an ass. Like, where did this turn come from? Where is the justification for this? And then the thing that bothered me throughout the rest of the film is why was there never any sort of apology, uh, especially with Isabel? I mean, I felt like we needed better closure with that. All of a sudden, they're just talking again, and that really bugged me. And weirdly, I felt like I wanted a um, uh, kind of a reconciliation with that woman that he uh, that he was kind of dating and told off. That was just a horrible way to end that. I got to go back to your point about Wendy's speech, because mm, all, everything yeah. that you just said is unredeemed in the movie, right? For, to right. me, for Xavier, like all of that stuff is unredeemed. We get this shot at the end where Wendy, it's like, this is her final pitch. This is her final, like, you need to be with me thing. I'm giving you a shot. I'm telling you everything. And the next thing you do is going to determine how our relationship proceeds. and. What her, what we find out later is that she was expecting him to stay because she knew he had lied and she was trying to get him to stay with her. And she knew that the next thing, if he stayed on that train, that she was going to walk away a single woman, not in a relationship. And that's exactly what happened. He did not stay. He did not come back and make any sort of of grand gesture, any sort of effort to redeem the things that had so far been un- irredeemable about his behavior toward women at, to the one who was most important to him, Wendy, presumably, at the end of the movie, and they still end up together. And I find that math, the calculus, the relationship calculus just does not add up. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't feel like their relationship is a justified one. And I I need to feel that as much as this movie exists in this meta space about the two of them, Wendy and Xavier, writing this, you know, TV movie script and, and how they don't want it to be cliche. And yet their meta dialogue about cliche in this movie is all about how, hey, we need some cliche. Their cliche exists for a reason. We need people to feel rewarded about their experiences together. Uh, I needed more of that at the end of this movie than I got. I needed there to be a rewarding romantic speech, an effort, an endeavor, a grand gesture, something to redeem this character, and I never got it. And that, more than anything else, is making me really nervous about the third movie in this series. Well, and, you know, to that point, I was also frustrated that Klappich decided to kind of use their journey as writers on this TV project as the kind of uh, a linchpin, I guess we'd say, for that final speech. Because we have on the boat where he, we see, um, you know, he's, nothing's working for Xavier. He's all depressed. He's on this boat. It's kind of the, the, uh, the wedding reception for William and his bride. And he's standing there depressed. He looks over, he sees Wendy, who's also sad and depressed. And he goes over to her and he delivers all these cliched lines. I love you. I've always loved you. And then it cuts and he's still standing there and you realize, oh, this was all just in his head. And he's just like, no, 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 I can't do it that way. And I'm like, oh, okay. So he's going to now, the director, he's going to now use his tools to kind of find the right way to do this. And then he starts again, and he goes at it a different route, 
Um, and it involves her parents and everything. And I was waiting for them to continue because I was like, well, this isn't that great of a sell. Like, why is this the thing that would sell her? Surely it's not going to be the last one. And we're going to get another turn yeah, as he tries to come up with the right way. Time, please. Right. And it doesn't. And that's it. And all of a sudden they're back together. I'm like, what? That that was their big twist is, is you know, a second opportunity, a second journey in his head is the answer. And it really fell flat for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you brought up Isabel. Uh, I have to say, the entire Isabel sequence, I, I did really enjoy. I did not like what it represented in light of the rest of this conversation. It doesn't make him look great. What I'm talking about here is he needs to find, he feels obligated to his uncle, that he finds his a fiancé, or his grandfather, right, um, that he finds a fiancé before, you know, granddad dies. And so he asks Isabel, do you have a dress? She says, why would I have a dress? What could a dress be for me? Well, she finds a dress. She gets an address, and she pretends to be. It's the old threes company trope. She pretends to be the the fiancé, and they go to dinner, and it's a, a very challenging social interaction, but they make it through. And you know, at this point, he's he's living with Isabel and and uh, kind of sharing her place and they're kind of rekindling their friendship and they're doing the things that roommates kind of do with one another. I I enjoyed that sequence and I even enjoyed when all of her friends came over and dressed him up in drag like they were having such fun at his expense. I needed to have fun at his expense at that point, And I felt I felt great about that sequence uh, that that was a thumbs up for me. Yeah, I, I thought so, too. And it's just uh, it's a shame that that was followed up by that kind of horrific scene where he you know, ruins everything with with Martine and this other woman that he's dating and all of his and, and Isabel and all of her friends. It was strange. And I, I guess I can see they were trying to do a twist on this kind of soap opera-ish story that he's writing because it felt very much, you know, like the, you know, he's got the, the you know, one girl in the house, the other comes to the door, and it, it played it up very much like that, but it just, I don't know, it just completely fell apart for me. And yeah, it just, it ruined everything that he was doing with Isabel for me. I thought there was an interesting opportunity to continue that relationship and uh, certainly at least to give, you know, the actress more to do, and it just wasn't there. Yeah, because, boy, when when they're done, she's gone. You know, we don't get any more of her. And we needed her. We needed that energy of that character to continue to meter what we're getting out of Xavier, which is not good. And in in fact, the fact that it was kind of this unknown friend of Isabel's who punched him in the face, I I think was a missed opportunity, frankly. Uh, It needed to be Isabel, right? Right. She's, She's the one who needed to come up and punch him right smack in the gob. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's a, it's a frustrating relationship that we had with with Xavier this time, and it I don't know. It just it made the whole film that much more frustrating because I just don't feel this. You know, something that we haven't talked about much on the show at all, really, is this whole concept of the male gaze and how a male filmmaker, male storytellers are kind of making a story, and they write these these female characters, and they put us all into this world of this male character that all ends up being very male. And I couldn't help but feeling um, in this particular case that this film just felt so much like a man was writing this and a man was telling the story. And sure, some of it may have been from Cedric's kind of youth or something like that. But even if it wasn't, it, 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 it just felt so much like the hands of a male filmmaker were at work here. The way that the women acted and reacted and, you know, moved through things um, were, were done in a way where it just it really felt like not great storytelling because it, it ended up making these female characters, um, especially in the relationships like with Wendy, not authentic. She came across as something that a guy would write saying, okay, he hurts her feelings, he or he yells at Martine and he yells at this other woman, but it's okay because he's struggling and he's going to get through it and then everything will be okay. But we lose the sense that it's, it's you know, sure, it's Xavier's story, but there are other people involved. And by kind of leaving it in that gaze, it it takes away from the power of these other characters and and it hurts the film. 
I'm really glad you brought that up, Andy. What a great point. And and Isabel's apartment sequence is one great example that all of the lesbians in this sequence are like stereotypically lesbian, right? They're all hyper butch. You know what I mean? Like they all represent just sort of one category of stereotyped lesbian. And then we have one of the weirdest little sequences interjected in here that I think represents exactly what you're talking about, right? When you look at the male gaze as a sequence that uh, defines women as the object of desire, which is the sequence in the, um, uh, you know, walking through the street of ideal proportions, the the dance sort of sequence in uh, St. Petersburg. Now, the street of ideal proportions is a place in St. Petersburg. It is the, um, uh, it's the Zodchego Rossi Street. And uh, the street is known because it was designed such that the road itself is 25 meters across and the buildings on either side are symmetrical at 25 meters high. And the length of the road is 20 or 250 meters long. And uh, of interesting note, because I find it more interesting than the movie. Um, I was talking to my wife about this, who has an academic background in Russian studies, and she said, that's really interesting in St. Petersburg in particular, because even though Peter the Great was already gone at this point by a few decades, uh, when this road was, uh, was you know, designed by this ar- Italian architect in the 1820s, um, you know, he had brought a whole bunch of international architects to uh, St. Petersburg because he wanted it to feel like a real European city, not a Russian city. So St. Petersburg has all of these sort of remnants. And this is kind of the legacy. This architect, uh, you know, Rossi is is the legacy of Peter the Great in St. Petersburg. I think that's really fascinating stuff. So I had a much better time looking up stuff about this than on this movie. But the sequence we need to talk about here is the the this woman, uh, her name, what is her name? Um, Celia. Celia, this is Celia. Uh, the The sequence we want to talk about here is Celia walking down the middle of the streets, totally empty. The symmetry of the of the street is fascinating and beautiful and yellow and white, and the colors are very vibrant. But we're just behind her. She's just walking down the street, uh, and she is uh, wearing a short skirt, and she's kind of sashaying, and the camera is on her hips. It's just following her butt. And then it'll cut, do the cutaways back to uh, him behind her, Xavier behind her, and he starts doing this kind of interpretive dance. Uh, every time we look at him, we see his body or his head, torso, his, you know, doing his movement thing. Every time we cut back to her, we're behind her. Literally, the male gaze that Xavier has looking at her down the street. Uh, I am not sure that this sequence added anything uh, that was positive in my view of Xavier at all. What do you think? Nope. Not at all. It was a it was a very uh, frustrating scene. I mean, I, I guess what he was trying to say is that you know this is this um, street where it's all designed as perfection, and here's this woman that he's kind of put on a pedestal because, as he said earlier, you know she is like perfection. This is like the perfect woman, um, and and so to that end, I guess it's his opportunity to kind of break out of it. But uh, I don't know. It it was a weird sequence, and it for me very much define the male gaze and basically saying that that's that's kind of how Xavier is defining his life and uh, and I don't feel like you know he maybe he gets through this desire and this way of looking at the world but uh, I don't feel the film portrayed it in any strong way this is a still very much a story about this guy who lives by this this kind of whole uh, perspective where Everything is going to fall the way that he needs it to uh, because he's now in the right place for it to happen is is kind of the way it works. It, it, this is an interesting point, and it's probably an interesting time to bring up a point that we didn't talk about in the first film, this idea when he kind of grabs uh, Anne-Sophie and, and starts forcibly kissing her. And, uh, you know, after a moment, she kind of turns and, and uh, you know, in, initially she's not interested, but she kind of turns and it turns into this passionate affair that lasts for the entire year while he's there. But it is very much kind of forceful. And it is a trope about, you know, 
um, the man who forces himself on a woman to the point where uh, she has, she, you know, she's taken so taken that she has to be with him. Um, you know, Ben Lott brought this up in our Discord channels about a point that we didn't talk about in the last film, and I think it's very relevant still um, at, with the sequence that you just brought up. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I regret that we didn't bring that up. And I think there's so much of, uh, you know, when we watch movies like o- older movies like like this, this sort of 80s and 90s, and and earlier, we have these this trope of you know, no means yes. That um, you know, she's she, we just know if he's persistent enough, she's going to r- reveal her true feelings, and her true feelings are that he's irresistible, and he's always going to be irresistible. That's how the trope works, and eventually they're going to have a passionate affair out of this whole thing. If he just holds on to her too long, if he just keeps kissing her around the face and neck, if he just, if he just, if he just, and th- that kind of the use of that trope is incredibly dated now and and I don't want to say in my defense we should have talked about about this because it it really did it it strikes a chord uh and it's it it doesn't feel good to watch it today because you know we're conditioned rightly so better than that and uh and, and so this this was not a good example and you're right it's just now that we have this movie built on top of that, it's just more of the same. It's unveiling more of who this character is and how this character was written not to take advantage of the complex, the beautiful and complex cultural tapestry that existed in the Spanish apartment without Xavier in it. But now we reveal that Xavier is a one-trick pony. He hasn't grown or learned, and he's still struggling with the base, the basest of instincts of what it is to be the most stereotypical of men. And I, I'm finding that gross with every minute that sort of goes by. It makes me wonder uh, where we're going to go with the third film because you know clearly there's a lot of uh, biographical stuff that Clappich has kind of infused into these, or at least the first one. It just, but it it ends up making me wonder, you know, what is he really trying to say here, and and is he this character who has this sort of view on relationships and everything, and and. Uh, you know, I, yeah, it just turns into a situation where is it? It's not that healthy anymore. It's funny because I feel like when I watch La Berge Espagnole, I find uh, I don't know. Maybe it's because I I end up connecting so closely with Xavier through the beginning of that film, and when I see Anne Sophie first kind of make those initial connections with him, I ended up feeling like. I could I I sensed her connection for him and so I kind of was moving right along with kind of that relationship and I wasn't surprised that when he kissed her she started kissing back but in retrospect the more I thought about it after Ben brought it up in Discord I'm like you know it it wasn't really that uh, apparent of her to do that. And I, I, I really felt like I had been taken by Clappage's male gaze as he made that film. And I didn't uh, really find myself uh, in a position where I was outside of that until the comment was made. And I was like, gosh, I, I really slipped right through that with, with him on that first film. And I, I, it's kind of uncomfortable to kind of look at it again and go, Eesh. you know, it, it, it doesn't work that well anymore. And it's a trope that does kind of need to end. People can find smarter ways to, to tell these stories. Well, and here's the problem with that. There, there is both the, the issue of the trope being used in film to excess and and it was during a period and you know we do less of that now but there's this sort of metacognitive thing right where how do we think about seeing these things these tropes in cinema are there characters who deserve to be able to play these scenes in film right because there is room for characters who are overly aggressive with women and women who are uncertain about how they're going to it is there a story that you know that merits that kind of darkness and i argue yes of, there is of course i can't think of any of those stories off the top of my head i don't enjoy necessarily seeing it but is there room for filmmakers and artists to create stories of all kinds yes absolutely there there is. My question is, is this story 
Like, does are we interested enough in Xavier to see him go through these things? Does this add to him as a character? Is this merited? Is it earned? And it is becoming less and less earned over the course of these two films now that this character is somebody that we're, I'm interested in following. Uh, that he he exists in a world where so many other wonderful things are going on, and he is the least of those. And so to see him, you know, treat women poorly doesn't add to him as as a growing and and you know healthy adult human being. Well, I'm going to um, respond to your comment because I think it's a it's a good question to ask. I think absolutely the stories can be told. Um, definitely have this sort of trope in a film, but then deal with it. That's how you do it. Exactly. Yes. You know, it has to be something that happens, and then there's a response to that. If 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 Xavier is going to act this way, you know really give us a solid story that answers that. And I'm sure there's a tricky way to do it in a romantic comedy that can still work. I mean, if you're putting it into the story in the first place, find a way for for Xavier to get his comeuppance. And all of a sudden, he's going to be in a place where it's like, you know, it becomes a part of the story. Absolutely, it can be done. And I think it it challenges the storytellers to tell it in a way that it's going to work for us. Uh, then can we talk about the naked run through Paris? <laughs> I, was, I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> this is a different, uh, a different woman. This is Neus, who we do meet at the very end of La Berge Espagnole. She's the one that uh, he kind of connects with in the bar in Barcelona when uh, he's having his going away party. Yes, and it turns out she uh, she is uh, fiery. That's yes, yes. And, and fiery, I would say, is a descriptor used within the realm of the male gaze because I can't imagine this sequence ever to happen in the world ever <laughs> um, can you can you please walk me through it well so they're having an argument and it, you know it, it seems like they have a relationship that is very much kind of um you know they're getting along they're not getting along in this fiery moment where they're not getting along and apparently either before, during, or after a moment of uh, sexual uh, proximity, because they're both naked, um, she r runs out of the apartment angry at him. He runs out uh, after her, and they both happen to be naked. And they kind of, uh, you know, he chases her down in the streets. They're naked. He gets her, and they bring her, uh, he brings her back to the apartment. And the but line, they, they of course, run, is... As far as we know, they run blocks. Like, it's not just, oh, he makes it outside. They're at a yeah. full, full tilt sprint, completely naked, through the streets of Paris. Okay. Right. And then he gets her, and then his line is, you know, we had to go through this. It proved we were in love. Barf. Yeah. <laughs> I, I again I, I I struggle trying to figure out is is the director is is he is this like what does he think love is and I, I think this is where I got confused like I can see the first film working really well because it's it's a person trying to figure out who am I and and, and what am I going to do with my life I think that made a lot of sense and it worked really well for that film in this particular case I feel like He's doing this search for love, and I feel like I feel like the the storyteller just doesn't have a solid sense of how to make that work. And all of these things that are in Xavier's life, just none of them make sense. And I don't know if he's trying to compare it to the nonsense cliche version of what goes on in this uh, sap, sappy love story that they do, or or if it's uh, if it's just bad writing. Or well, both, and and I would say architecturally, uh, whatever you think of that that parallel, because I think it's important that you say that you said that that there is at least the opportunity for a connection between what he and Wendy are writing this cheesy soap opera and what is going on in the film, and. I would say architecturally, one of the central failings, if that is the intention, is that that is not clear enough for sure, if at all. That, that there is some sort of gamesmanship going on here with the story that it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like what Xavier is going for going through is enough of that parallel 
um, in a way that's allowing us to watch him grow and transform throughout the course of the film. You know, before we move on, I'm sure that we're going to talk about some other elements of cast and and crew and whatnot. But I do just want to say, uh, you know, Notre Dame burned down uh, oh, just horribly yeah. not too long ago. There are a few shots in this, um, like when he's over at Celia's and he's looking out the window at the river, but you can see Notre Dame behind it and a few other places where you see Notre Dame. And it just broke my heart. Uh, every time that I saw Notre Dame in any of these shots here, just thinking about that and watching that fire burn on TV, it just, it was very, very sad to see. Oh, it was, it was heartbreaking, truly. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the only other, the only person in the cast, now, we sh- uh, just in terms of the rundown, this is much more of an Audrey Totu movie than the last one was. She's in this, you know, enough to be interesting, if only still sidelined. Kelly Riley is back. She's fantastic as Wendy. Cecile DeFrance is Isabel. We talked about how great they were in the last movie. They're back. Kevin Bishop is William. He's transformed. Um, uh, with a lot of hair. Oh, with a lot Holy more hair. Hell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Evgenia Obratsova as Natasha uh, in, in Russia, the ballerina. She's she's great, although small part. Um, Lucy Gordon as Celia uh, Shelburne, the famous young 24 year old fame generically famous person who wants to write her memoirs um <laughs> she's a funny character um gary love oh uh aisa Maigaj, uh as cassia who is the the woman you mentioned at the very beginning who yes. comes who shows up um to and and is shocked and that sort of incites uh, the big blow up at Isabel's place, and she was also great. I think we don't we don't get enough of her. Yeah, so the, I liked her. It really did. That, I yeah, think the women in really general in this movie. Yeah. yeah, the women in general in this movie were fantastic. I really enjoyed, uh, you know, all their supporting the the opportunity for supporting performances that could have been, you know, stronger uh, if they were given a better protagonist to play off of. I don't know. Uh, But Gary Love is the jerk, the uh, Wendy's ex. uh, And it it turns out he has gone on to do some kind of interesting thing. He's directed things. He's directed a number of uh, or some episodes of the following. Um, He directed Sugar House with uh, uh, Andy Serkis. and um, uh, so he's and he's you know he's an actor too. He's been in a, a, a bunch of stuff, mostly TV. And actually, this movie is is you know one of the more recent things that he did in terms of his acting career. But right now he's directing, um, uh, he, he's directing, and it seems like he's got some interesting stuff going on. So uh, Gary Love's a guy who might be uh, might be worth checking out. Uh, his two thousand. 17 film the dark mile is a movie that i have not seen two women recovering from personal tragedy take a boat trip through the scottish highlands didn't do well on the imdb star rating of 4.8 so uh maybe that's not one ouch but um yeah right uh, but i do like the following that's a that's a show speaking of bacon (laughs) so yeah he was an interesting uh performance and actually so I've got three points uh, left. I so he he was a terrible abusive boyfriend. Terrible that the Wendy worst. had. Yeah. And so I was trying to gauge if he was so broadly written as kind of that abusive boyfriend that Wendy kept returning to because Clappich needed a uh, needed to make and find a way to make Xavier seem like a much better alternative. Uh, yeah. Even though even though he's not. And so I'm like, is he is he too broad and cliche as just kind of the abusive boyfriend uh, just to make that fit? And it kind of frustrated me a little bit because then it just makes it, well, it, although I will say, it makes it seem like, okay, well, if that's the type of guy that Wendy's falling for, she's clearly not too far from the mark if she's also falling for Xavier because she's really having a hard time finding men who are good. Yeah, right. <laughs> so then I'm like, okay, maybe that is a point. So if we begin from the perspective here. that it's her problem, <laughs> yeah, the whole right. story changes. I'm really curious to see how that actually um, continues in as we get to the third mm-hmm. film. Uh, my next point, and this is something, it's not quite related with what we were just talking about here. It's specifically about William and and his marriage that, uh, you know, he gets married to to uh, 
he gets married to Natasha. And then at the wedding, I, I was, I got a little confused because I'm like, what is Cedric trying to say here? Because William in the wedding photos, like he's struggling to smile. And then he's on the boat at the, at the reception and he's throwing up in the bathroom and Natasha's just sitting there. And I'm like, is he, is he trying to say that there are problems already with this relationship? Uh, I couldn't figure out what they were trying to do the way that this relationship was portrayed. And I'm like, you know, from the beginning, when we find out William has fallen in love with Natasha, it's always made out like he's found the one. This is it. This is the final uh, one in his life. He's going to be happy now. And then all of a sudden, all this happens. I'm like, what is going on with this relationship here? Did you, How did you read all of that? Well, I the the line that I stick on is when he's in the bathroom and he says to Xavier, I'm, I'm just so happy. I'm just so happy. Like he's crying because he's so happy and he's upset that he's seasick and keeps throwing up. But why was he having a hard time smiling during the wedding photos? <sighs> okay, I, that I, I'm with you. That's very confusing. The way I had to kind of interpret that was that he is not the kind of guy who is built for these big ceremonial things. And he was just tired of smiling and, you know, being a part of all of the all of the pomp and circumstance that comes with a wedding. That's that's yeah. how I read it. But well, they do I, kind I don't of know. put that there because he's like stretching his face and stuff. Yeah. But still, I just I don't know. It's it's in there and it ends up making me question like what is going on with this relationship? It just all of a sudden spun it in a way that I just didn't think I needed it to go into. Ugh. It's kind of exhausting to feel like you have to work so hard to interpret every single character like in a way that yeah. to to rationalize it into your worldview. It's tiring. My last point that I wanted to bring up, the whole analogy of Russian dolls that we end up getting toward the end of the film as he's kind of wrapping up his novel that he's writing in the bathroom, um this whole analogy getting to it's it's all about this idea of at least according to Xavier in his life, he sees it as all these women that he has to go through in his life are Russian dolls, and he keeps opening them, trying to find the one that's going to be the one, that last little one that you end up in the in the inside of this Russian nesting doll. And and so I was thinking about that. I'm like, is that a an analogy that we want to make? I, I wasn't sure how well I liked that uh, kind of metaphor for his life and the way that he. Uh, was going through women trying to find the one. How, how did that work for you? Terribly, terribly. It did not play. And I don't know if it's that I have, am missing a cultural sensitivity, like there's some sort of idiomatic save that I, I need to count on from the French, that that Russian dolls mean something different, but I didn't find it. And uh, it, it did not play. It, it once again... Um, you know, it reduces the role of women and relationships in his life to uh, effectively a puzzle or a toy. Um, and uh, I found that deeply disrespectful to the relationships that they were trying to write in these film in this film. Yeah, I didn't I didn't care for it. What do you think of the puzzle at the end? Wendy is working on this puzzle and it looks like the uh, I, I, it's it's quick uh, where we have this knight. He's being knighted by um, a woman uh, at the end and she finishes the puzzle and she says, Xavier finished. And then they, they tilt down to the puzzle on the floor and something that she, it was very important to her. She's been working on it throughout the course of the entire film. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I wasn't really sure. I, you know, I, I was trying to find what that image was uh, from what I uh, what I found, it's an image, it's a famous uh, image of a knight being knighted. It looks like it's called the Accolade, if I'm finding the right one, by Edmund Blair Leighton. Yeah. I don't know. It's It says it's uh, it's one of many paintings produced by Leighton on the subject of chivalry. I don't know what the point of that is as the puzzle that she's putting together here or what they're trying to say. Um, the only thing that I took out of it is my wife and I both walked out going, we're going to say super bueno all the time now. <laughs> Cause that's what, uh, that's Xavier's that's reaction what Xavier to her says. finishing it. <laughs> super bueno. 
I don't know. I wasn't really sure what the point of that was. Uh, you know, finally the puzzle pieces in their lives are coming together. I don't well, know. And, it didn't and, work for me. You know, the ceremony, and I'm I'm going off of Wikipedia here, and so begin begin to put this as a transparency on top of the film. In the painting, the ceremony is performed by a young queen. The knight bowed before her feet is in a position of submission and fealty. An audience is gathered at the queen's left, serving as witness to the ceremony. She is, uh, you know, is she sort of putting herself in the position of the young queen that she expects loyalty and fealty, that she is somehow gratified that he came to his senses and came back to her after that disaster at the train, uh, that she wants a more public sort of presentation of his loyalty? Like, there, I mean, as I sort of I you peel that onion and it, it, you know, gets kind of stinky. It's, yeah, it's an odd one to try finding a real connection. And, and it's the uh, last yeah, yeah. shot in the film, right? Right. I mean, it, technically, yeah, it's kind of a mid-credit sequence. Right. Yeah, it kind of, it's a, a few credits, and then all of a sudden this kicks in. Like, here's yeah. the puzzle. And I, I yeah, he's like, why is this here? It doesn't even need to be. Yeah. It was a frustrating follow-up to a film I enjoyed a lot more, and it ended up, um, highlighting more some of the problems I had with the first film. So it, that I didn't way, even know I a, had. Yeah, kind of a frustrating experience all around with this one. And I, I'm a little worried with where we're going to go uh, for the next one. I guess we'll see. Any awards? This film was not as well-received award-wise as the first one. It had one win for other nominations. The win was at the Caesar Awards. Again, Best Supporting Actress, Cecily DeFrance. She uh, won Best Supporting Actress for this film. Wow. Really surprising, because, I, I mean, I thought she was good in the first film, but um, in no way did I think she did anything more with this film that deserved that. What's interesting is Kelly Riley was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Cecily DeFrance. <laughs> I wow. really question that. I really question that. I think Kelly Riley was uh, the heart and soul. I think you look at that speech she gives at the train. I think that right there would have made me want to pick her instead of uh, Cecily. Um, the film also was nominated for Best Editing by Francine Sandberg, um, but she did not end up taking that one. It ended up going to the beat that my heart skipped. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it didn't. It wasn't quite as uh, as big of a film. So. Uh, and at the box office, now the last week we learned that this, you know, the Spanish apartment was a big deal for Klepich. Was this one a significant follow-up? Well, certainly uh, it kicked in budget-wise for him. He had a much bigger budget. Last time it was $5.9 million to do um, uh, La Berge Espanol. With this film, he had $10.7 million. So, and that's $13.1 million in today's dollars. So definitely a bigger budget to play around with. The movie ended up opening in France on June fifteenth, two 2005. And uh, it did it did well. I mean, this film found its mark. It made twenty three point four million internationally. It ended up getting a release here in the states on uh, May tenth. It was a Wednesday opening here, a limited release, very limited release in two thousand six. Opposite Poseidon, Just My Luck, the Lindsay Lohan, Chris Pine film, and Goal: The Dream Begins, a, a little. Disney sports drama. Um, it uh, was very independent. It didn't make a lot of money over here in the States, only $326,000, but it still was a success. Um, all told, it made an adjusted gross of $29 million, and that landed it in an adjusted profit per finished minute of $128,000. Well, it's profitable. Profitable. Yeah. Gives him, uh, gives, keeps his career going and gives him a chance to get around to the third film that he'll make. Um, he's going to be doing his final film of this uh, this trilogy, the Spanish Department trilogy, in 2013, Chinese Puzzle. All right. Well, I think we should. I think we should just go ahead and get it out of the way and rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can see all the movies we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap Flickchart, it'll take you directly to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, Russian Dolls or A Star is Born, 1937. A Star is Born. I'm going to take A Star is Born. Russian Dolls or A Star is Born, 1976. I'm actually going to go with Russian Dolls. Okay. Russian Dolls or King's Row? King's Row. 
You know, the thing I will say that's going to affect my voting is Russian Dolls, despite my issues, Cedric Klapich knows how to make a, an invigorating, exciting film to watch. And I think that there's something to that. I probably would put Russian Dolls on before King's Row. All right. I'm not, I'm not saying too. that's right. I'm not saying I'm not that's feel, right. Well, and I'm not feeling terribly strongly about it, about these right now, now that where we are in the in the set. So I can be swayed. I'll give that to you. Right. You're right. You're right. And okay. I do. I deeply enjoy some of these characters and some of these performances. I really do. As much as I dislike our central character, I, I think it's I think they're they're good. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff going on around him. Russian Dolls or the Maltese Falcon? Absolutely. Oh, Maltese. Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Russian Dolls or Infernal Affairs? I'll take Infernal Affairs. Infernal Affairs. Absolutely. Russian Dolls or the Verdict? 100%. The, the verdict? verdict? Russian Dolls or About Time? About Time. About Time. Russian Dolls or Princess Mononoke? I'm going to take the princess. Princess. Russian Dolls or Ocean's 12? Ocean's. Go with, uh, Ocean's 12. Well, that lands Russian Dolls at 250 on our chart out of 400. That's 400. Uh, that was the 400th right there. That was the 400th. Landing at 38%. <laughs> well, it actually did better uh, on our uh, next real chart than it did on my own. How'd it do on yours? It did better on my own chart than it did on the next real chart. For me, it landed at 1738 out of 4120, which is about a 58%. Man, uh, flick chart destroyed this movie on my behalf. Uh, <laughs> really? It, it fell to 943 out of 1,079, uh, which is a Oof. 13%. Uh, and if I go by the algorithm over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, I should be giving this a half star. That feels egregiously low, even for a movie I don't like that much. Now, the question is, is it a one-star movie? I think it's actually better than that. Uh, I, I think I could come in at uh, at two stars and not feel like it's uh, it's getting away with too much. That's where I'm landing. I'm at two stars, and I'm torn if I'm going to say I like it or not. I, I feel like I'm not going to give it a heart. I feel like I like it, but I don't feel like I'm going to give it a heart. Like, it's an easy watch. I could absolutely watch this again. No problem. I enjoy enough of the characters. I enjoy... I enjoy most of the story. I really enjoy the way that Clappage puts a film together. It's just a really exciting, invigorating uh, filmmaking. Um, but having to hinge the film on a character that I end up really not liking um, really frustrates me. So two stars and no heart. Yeah, I'm with you. Two stars and no heart. It is definitely not heartworthy. And uh, so I'm, I'm fine walking away from this one. It's not one I'm really going to go back to. But if I had to, I'd be doing it for, uh, you know, Isabel and Cassia and Natasha and Wendy. Wendy. Yeah, those are, those are the ones to, to care about. But this, this uh, Xavier guy, yeah, let him go. Well, let's. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see where we end up with him next uh, next week in the final film of this Spanish Apartment trilogy as we jump to 2013 and check it out on uh, Chinese Puzzle. Maybe that's why we're ending with a puzzle. <laughs> Maybe that's it. The the British knights or French knights depicted in this puzzle are <laughs> undoubtedly a, a nod to the Chinese puzzle in the movie to come, I'm sure. Well, everybody, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, The Marvel Movie Minute. We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time, starting with 2008's Iron Man. You can support that show and all of our shows over on thenextreel.com slash Patreon where you can get access to also our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Amazon uh, has an opinion about this French film. And uh, I know, even though we picked kind of low, I, I and technically, I think I was supposed to go with a five-star. I, I was not able to do it. I, <laughs> I found a one-star that I needed to go with. Um, and I, I feel like it teaches us a lesson beyond just that in the film. And I, I would like to present it, if you don't mind. 
Cool. Wow. That's exciting. Bill gives us a one star and the title of his review is bad would be undue praise. (laughs) Oh, Bill, (laughs) where are you going? Uh, This was in May 23rd, 2015. Bill says, I am a Francophile. This movie features a self-centered man-boy who abuses women. The language used is awful, although not untypical. Be glad it's not all translated and that the translations are not literal. France and the French are much nicer than shown here. Well, except maybe Paris. Now, I have to say my experience with people in Paris is that they were it was just another big city. And if you've been to New York or San Francisco or wherever, London, you're going to find people that are big city people. But I and my French is apparently very rough because now I want this movie translated for me. Literally, if Bill says it is I'm all I can imagine is that it's the Quentin Tarantino of of French movies now, this <laughs> Russian dolls romance movie. It's just foul. I can't wait to find that version. Oh my gosh, so funny. Yeah. I'm very curious now too. Well, I went got? with a five star. And this is uh this is by RMM, who watched it a few years ago and provided some, I think, helpful advice for a five star review. This is the second film in a trilogy. See the films in order. My wife and I loved the series. But you have to watch them in order. Wow. Isn't that interesting? This is the second one. I didn't know that. In a trilogy, you should watch things in order. Wow. But luckily, RMM is here to clarify for us. Well, I'm just glad that he's here to clarify this for us, particularly because we're already doing this in order. (laughs) And it feels like I now feel like we made the right choice. I know you and I I went back and forth. Should we start with number three? Maybe we start with number two and just roll the dice. But I think we we made the right call. I think people still question that with our uh, uh, David Fincher uh, Benjamin Button style series in which we did his whole career backward. (laughs) But hey... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Those were the days we just did hither and yon. We would do all movies all over the place. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>